If you know me well, or maybe if you know me at all, you know that I'm sometimes late for things. So I'm one of those people that never complains about all the previews that run before a feature film because those previews give me extra time to get to the theater, buy popcorn, and get settled. They provide a cushion of time so that I don't miss the beginning of the film. And I'm grateful for that. Because being late for a movie is like skipping the first chapter of a book. You may eventually figure out where the action is set and what's essential to the plot, but it's going to take some time, and you're likely to miss important things along the way. Well, the beginning of a gospel functions in much the same way as the first chapter of a book or the first five minutes of a movie. Each gospel begins by setting the story of Jesus within a particular context, within some greater narrative. And that greater narrative highlights certain aspects of Jesus' life and ministry that fit best with that particular gospel writer's understanding of who Jesus of Nazareth is. Mark starts with John the Baptist proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness for sin. From there, Mark skips over Jesus' birth and childhood altogether and delves right into the adult ministry of Jesus focusing on the suffering and death of a crucified Messiah. Matthew begins with a genealogy stretching all the way back to Abraham. Add to that the flight to and return from Egypt by Jesus' family, Jesus' five major discourses in Matthew, which are reminiscent of the five books of the law, and the sermon that Jesus gives on a mountain. All of these point to the great figure Moses. What Matthew does here places Jesus firmly in the context of Jewish history, portraying him as the fulfillment of the Torah and the prophets. Luke begins the story of John the Baptist's birth with in the days of King Herod of Judea and begins the account of Jesus' birth with a decree from Emperor Augustus during the time Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke sets the stage politically for the Messiah's birth. He contrasts the political power of the day with the entirely different kind of power we see in the life of Jesus, a power that requires that the greatest among you become like the youngest and the leader like one who serves. But then there's John. John begins his gospel not with the history of a people or with a ministry or with the birth of the prophet John during a time of political oppression. Instead, he begins with the very life of God before the world was even created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. According to John, to understand the Jesus of history, we have to begin with the eternal life of God. We have to begin with the Word. I think we in the 21st century have a hard time grasping the significance of what John means by word. Today we are lost in an ocean of words. An estimated 294 billion emails are sent each day in the world. That's 3.4 million emails per second. 90% of emails produced are actually spam. These emails don't facilitate relationship, meaning, or revelation of any kind. They are just empty words. We're inundated with words in the news media, too. 
The news anchor is reciting the day's events while a tape runs across the bottom of the screen giving up to the second breaking news. An outline of upcoming topics lines the edge of the screen. In such a world with words everywhere, have our words lost all meaning? Have they become powerless? But then we hear the beautiful prologue of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Greek word here that is translated word is logos. Now that's not the same thing as a word on a page. The Greek word for word in the grammatical context is lexis. Instead, logos has a much wider reach of meaning. It can be thought of as speech, conversation, thought, reason, or even wisdom. So it's been suggested that we should think of a word in this first chapter of John as not indicating a grammatical word on a page, but as speech. Speech is always directed toward something. It always has an outward component. It doesn't just sit on the page. It is dynamic, moving, action-oriented, creative. Words directed outward in the form of speech carry creative power. We see it over and over again in Scripture. God speaks and the world comes into being. God speaks and prophets lead God's people out of slavery, foretell destruction, and offer words of hope. God speaks and the word made flesh, Jesus, becomes one with us. Jesus speaks and people are healed. And when the same spirit that rested on Jesus at his baptism comes upon the church at Pentecost, those followers also receive the power to speak words that heal and change the world around them. Spoken words have creative power in scripture. They shape the world into which they are spoken. And no word shapes the world more beautifully than the word that became flesh in the person of Jesus. It's been said that Jesus is God's sermon preached to us in the living out of a human life. Jesus is God's sermon preached to us in the living out of a human life. The incarnation is God's ultimate creative, healing, dynamic word. Well, despite the fact that we live in a world that is inundated with words of all kinds, I don't think that words are any less relevant today than they were in biblical times. And I don't think we, the church 2,000 years later, have been left speechless by the Holy Spirit. Like John the Baptist and those in the early church upon whom the Spirit descended, we too are called to testify to the light that shines in the darkness, to testify to the grace and truth that wasn't just uttered in the word spoken 2,000 years ago, but to the grace and truth that continues even now to be spoken to and in and through us. See, each of us is given a word to speak, not just deacons, priests, and bishops, but all of us. Now, I realize this concept might make Episcopalians a little nervous especially since evangelism has never really been an Episcopal strong point. But our own timidity, fear of failure, discomfort, and inadequacies, all of that does not get us off the hook when it comes to speaking the word that the world needs to hear. The truth is that even in a word-saturated world, too many people struggle to find meaning. 
We've forgotten who we are and who we're called to be. Now more than ever, amidst the barrage of voices that flood our ears, we need to hear a prophetic word that strikes a dissonant chord. We need to hear a word endowed with the power to recreate and heal us. We need to hear that God became flesh and dwelt among us, and so our lives of the flesh and all their complexity and messiness are somehow sacred too. We need to hear that the love of God sustains every breath we take, pervades every inch of our being, and is greater than any darkness that we will ever face. Simply, and not very originally put, we need to hear good news. Today we will baptize Francesca, Lucia, and Harper. They are already children of God. But today we celebrate that they will live out their identity as children of God in the life of the church. Along with them, we will be asked this question. Will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? We'll respond with the words, I will with God's help. We will welcome them into the church, saying we receive you into the household of God. Confess the faith of Christ crucified, proclaim his resurrection, and share with us in his eternal priesthood. And we will wait with hope to see how the word spoken in and through each of them will shape the world in healing, creative, and loving ways. Amen.